And if you're going to stay with us, let's please get 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. And uh, get that in your right hand. In your left hand, you can get Numbers, the book of Numbers, chapter 13. So we have spoken on a couple of subjects so far as it pertains to the spiritual battle. We've talked about the battlegrounds, which is your heart and mind. Last time we talked about the battle plans. There's tactics. There's devices that Satan has. And we walked you through some of those. Today we're talking about battle barriers. The battle barriers. And uh, the biblical word for this is going to be a stronghold. Second Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 4. I'm just reading this with you to remind you of the word, and then we're going to look in numbers, get a little more information. Verse 4 says, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Now, guys, there is such a thing as a good stronghold. There's a, a protection that your heart and mind needs And that stronghold or those strongholds is any truth that comes from God that will protect you from the lies of the devil. But, Numbers chapter 13, the enemy also has his set of battle barriers. And we must not be ignorant of these things. These mental strongholds, spiritual strongholds, I don't know what you picture in your mind when you hear the word stronghold, but think of a massive wall that circles about a property. And it is meant to keep people out and, of course, protect what's inside. And when the devil takes somebody captive at his will, he will often erect a stronghold to keep his lie in and keep other truth from getting in. See, he wants to keep truth out and lies in. So these strongholds are, different words you could put to it, a worldview. It is an approach to life. It is a philosophy. It is something that colors your entire way of thinking. It is not just a momentary attitude that you have. A stronghold is something that affects every part of your life, every decision that you make, is somehow colored by this stronghold, right? So if you're thinking of of being on the property, you look out and there's this massive wall that encircles the property. You cannot look out without seeing the stronghold. Am I painting that clear in your mind? Everywhere you look, there's that stronghold. So it's going to affect every part of your life. Numbers chapter 13, verse 19. This chapter shows us where Moses was commanded by God to send the spies into the land of Canaan. I want you to see one part of it here. The spies were told to look for this. Verse 19. And what the land is that they dwell in, whether it be good or bad, and what cities they be that dwell in, whether in tents or in strongholds. The enemy has strongholds. The spies were sent in to say, check these things out. See what kind of strongholds they are, how big and how tall they are. What would we need to do to pull them down? How can we get inside and pull down the stronghold? Furthermore, I want you to see in verse 19, there are tents. There are some options to this. Tents, 
or strongholds. Now, a stronghold, obviously, in Numbers 13, it is physical bricks, right, that, that stand in front of the building or on the land. We are thinking of this in a spiritual way, mental, emotional strongholds. So let's talk about strongholds and tents. A stronghold is something that is built to permanently be there and to always affect you. But a tent is mobile. A tent is temporary. So what the devil can do is slip some lie into your thinking and it, it keeps other truth from getting in. It keeps you from investigating further and it colors, it, it affects every part of your life. That's a permanent way of thinking that has crept into your mind. A tent is something that is passing. You might be having a good day and then one little thing happens and it triggers you. That's a tent. That's a little tent that got popped up. You're doing fine, and then one thing just, oh, and all of a sudden, you went from being in a good mood to immediately in a bad mood. You're having a good day, and now it's a bad day. And everything happening in that day is a bad thing now because of that little tent that popped up. And this is where you have to take that tent captive and bring it to the obedience of Christ and say, is this temporary, once-off frustration, this little annoying thing, should it actually turn me upside down and get me all sideways and ruin my day? I think the most obvious illustration of this is traffic. Brethren, it comes to pass. You're not going to be in traffic forever. I know it feels like that sometimes. But you're not going to be there forever. The guy cut you off. Okay, that's frustrating. The guy doesn't know how to drive. You know how many times people probably say that about you too? We, we think that we got it figured out. We, we know how to drive. Every turn, every, every flick of the blinker, we got it right. But oh, no, no. <laughs> we have our moments too. But one little time, and you're a happy-go-lucky guy, and one guy does something on the road you don't like, and bam, you're just thrown out of whack. Now, you've got to learn to push past those tents. Now, the, there's some strongholds. See, traffic is moving. It's fluid. It changes. It's mobile. But then there are some strongholds that are permanently there, and every day you think like this. Every day this is your approach to life. Now, today's lesson, I'm not going to be comprehensive. That is, I cannot give you a list of every single stronghold that exists. Guys, the list is enormous. We could go on and on for hours about various mental and emotional problems that people get stuck in. I'm going to give you a short list, and hopefully you will see the kind of things that are on the list, and maybe today we will touch on your stronghold, or maybe I won't, but you'll see, you know what? My stronghold, I see how it's similar and could fit in that list. So I, I hope this will be helpful either directly or indirectly. So a few strongholds. Get John chapter 11. John chapter 11. As you're finding that, let me say that almost every stronghold is an exaggeration of some sort. So I, I was tempted to make exaggerating a stronghold in and of itself. Because sometimes we get caught up in that. 
we, we think in extremes. It's either extremely good or extremely bad. For some people, there is no middle ground. You understand, some things are in the middle. Some things are just, eh. You say, where do we learn that? From the mouth of Jesus. I would, you were cold or hot, but some are just, eh. They're just, eh, they're in the middle. So there is middle ground, okay? So be careful of exaggerating. Everything I'm going to give you today, if it were done in moderation, wouldn't be bad. The problem is, everything on the list, when it goes too far, becomes a stronghold that stops you from knowing God and obeying God and functioning in this world the way God intended. It boxes you in and you get stuck in your Christian walk. Right? Number one. Here's an exaggeration. Pessimism. Pessimism. Right now, we're, we're in John 11 in verse 16. We're going to come to that verse in just a moment. Let me explain a couple of things about pessimism. The other end of this spectrum would be optimism, which can also be a stronghold of sorts, perhaps a more pleasant stronghold, but stronghold nonetheless. So you see the two ends of the spectrum. Optimism exaggerates the idea that everything in life is always good. That's not true. Some things that happen are bad. Sometimes you're supposed to weep. Amen? Amen. Jesus wept. What does Romans 12 command us? Rejoice with them that do rejoice and weep with them that we... There are bad things that happen. There are heartbreaking situations in life. We cannot be ignorant of that. To say that those things aren't real or don't happen is to ignore reality and can really get you in a mess because you won't know how to properly handle bad situations. You can't pretend they don't exist. They do. But, but the other end of that spectrum is pessimism. That is to say, nothing good ever happens to me. Nothing. That's a big word. Nothing. Every day... Everything I try always falls to pieces. I am the most unlucky person in the world. That's how it's often expressed. Do you hear the exaggeration in that? Come on. You're not the most unlucky person in the world. Number one, you haven't met all the people in the world. And number two, I mean, come on. Come on. (laughs) The most unlucky person? That's going way too far. We get it stuck in our minds sometimes. We wake up, and rather than being thankful for whatever sleep we did get, all we can think about is the negative. I I should have gotten better sleep. That wasn't that great of sleep. You know, I'm not going to have a good day now because I didn't sleep good. You know how things go. Every every day there's just problems and problems and problems, and everything's going to annoy me and bother me. I know this is going to be a bad day. Why? You're a pessimist. You have a negative stronghold, a negative force field that prevents any good things from ever happening to you. Because of this pessimistic stronghold, you interpret every event of life through the lens of that stronghold. This is your world view. It's your glasses. You put on these glasses of negativity and now every event is somehow bad. All right, let, let me ask you a few questions here. Does the Bible say that everything that is going to happen in your life is bad? 
Okay, so that's not a biblical thought. Where did that thought come from then? It didn't come from the Bible. God didn't say that. Who said it? Who put that thought in your head? You say, oh, Brother Mike, I've just learned this over the years of observation in my life. I don't know if you're being honest with yourself. Let me give you one very positive thing that will never change. Jesus died for you. On your worst day, that is still true. Jesus loved me so much, He died for my sins. Okay, so not everything that happens to you is bad. I'll give you another one. God's mercies are new every morning. It's hard to be pessimistic and acknowledge that verse at the same time. What are you going to say? Okay, God's mercies are new every morning, but they're not enough. I dare you to look up and say that. <laughs> Lord, I said it sarcastically. I didn't mean that. <laughs> Doesn't the Bible say all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose? The, the, when you read that, it's talking about all things working together for good, which is to say that the bad things that do happen, God can still use them for a good outcome. But it has to be an outcome that is according to His purpose. So we have a way as, as Christians to look at the negative things of life, acknowledge the reality of them, and still see, hey, some good can come from this. It keeps us balanced. It allows us to deal with the reality of enemies encompassing us, but also we have a way to deal with it. Now, in John chapter 11, I want to give you an example of a little bit of pessimism. Jesus is uh, about to go visit Lazarus, who has died. Verse 15, you can read it there. I am glad for your sakes that I was not there. Talking about Lazarus' place. To the intent you may believe, nevertheless, let us go unto him. Now here's a little bit of pessimism. Then said Thomas, which is called Didymus. This is the same guy we call Doubting Thomas. Same guy. Unto his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. <laughs> Jesus just said, I let all this happen so that you can believe something. Thomas ignores that and says, we're all going to die. Okay, wrong attitude, wrong attitude. Now, take your Bible, come to 1 Samuel chapter 13. So pessimism, be careful. You see that it's okay to accept the fact that not everything is good, but you can exaggerate it to the point of nothing's ever good, and that's, that's just wrong. Uh, 1 Samuel chapter 13. The next thing on my list is victimism. Victimism. Sometimes we call this the victim mentality. And, and rightfully named, right? We're dealing with things that affect you mentally and emotionally. Victim mentality. So it is a very popular thing in our day and age to adopt the victim mentality. So what's the victim mentality? It's very close to a martyr's complex. Some people even see it as the same thing. But a martyr's complex is somebody who is dying because they stood for something. Right? That's a martyr. He died. The word martyr means witness. He was bearing witness to something that he believed is true, and now he's being persecuted and, and treated 
uh, badly because of that. So that's a martyr. But a victim is somebody who is being persecuted or being treated poorly for absolutely no reason. In their mind, the victim says, I was just minding my own business, living my own life, and then people just started attacking me for no reason. Now, this gets carried a step further. This is to say every problem in my life is not my fault. The reason things in my life are not working properly is because of them. And it's always an ambiguous them. It's just them. Who is them? Them. Just them. Now, sometimes they point the finger at one certain group. The reason things are going poorly for me is because of the rich people, whoever they are. Sometimes it's because of the black people, or the white people, or the Arab people, or the Muslim people, or the Catholic people. And they just pick on a certain group and say, if, if they weren't around, everything in my life would be great. Sometimes the victim mentality forces them to create the idea of being attacked. No one's attacking them. But they purposely adopt some strange bad behavior and then when somebody says, hey, that's a little strange, they go, oh, I'm a victim. Oh, I can't believe it. Oh, I'm being so heavily persecuted. No, you're weird. <laughs> you're just weird. You did it to yourself. And, and forgive me, but I can't help but think of the LGBTQ alphabet community that does this. They, they, they want to purposely be different than everyone else. That, that's, I think, the starting place for a lot of them. Let me not say everyone because I, I don't know everybody's story. But many times the idea is I don't like the established hierarchy and therefore I need an excuse for my weirdness. So I'm going to be different and then I'm going to pretend that the rest of the world is persecuting me because I'm different. The rest of the world, that's again, that's an exaggeration. There, there might be one or two people that say, hey, we're a little concerned about your behavior because if you were born this way, that's what you are. Deal with that reality. Just deal with that reality. Because eventually it turns into, I can't believe God did this to me. God put me in the wrong body. I'm a victim. See, it's everybody else's fault. I did nothing wrong. I was just minding my own business in this world. I often think that people with, the, with a victim mentality, they're actually doing the world a great injustice because there are real victims in this world. There are people that have been horribly affected by oppressive governments, by biased bigots, by hatred, by prejudice. There are real victims in this world. And this big majority that's crying, victim, victim, they are taking away the voice of the real victims. You've all heard of the little story about the boy who cried wolf. You see, there's so many people now crying wolf that when the one kid who's actually being attacked by a wolf says, wolf, everybody says, ah, you're just one of them. That one actually needs help. The rest of you just made up the problem. I think that many times victimism is a coward's way of dodging responsibility. Instead of you saying, these are my mistakes, my life is going poorly because I made bad choices. 
it's much easier to say, I never make bad choices. I'm always just trying to do the right thing and live my life and be peaceful and happy and that's all I'm looking for, but it's all these other people that cause my life to go sideways. So it's blaming them and taking no responsibility for your own decisions. That's the danger of victimism. Uh, in, in 1 Samuel 13, let's turn to that, get verse 8. You know where else you often find a victim mentality? You, you find it in teenagers. Now, they're in Sunday school right now, so I'm not picking on them. I, I mean, it was just a few days ago I was a teenager, so I, I know how this is. It, it's your parents' fault. Right? As a teenager, I, I did. I had it all figured out. As I got older, I got dumber. <laughs> but as a teenager, I had it all figured out. And I knew I'm just trying to go about living my life. I'm not trying to hurt anybody. But yo, my dad... Every time I turned around, my dad was picking on me and saying no and trying to just stop all my fun, and I was the victim. Now, as I got a little older, I realized I wasn't a victim. I was just a teenage boy. And my dad had some wisdom about him to say no and no and no and stop it and sit down, and I needed that. But at the time, I played the victim. It happens with them. It happened. We blame our friends. We blame our government. You can go on and on. What about you, victim? What did you do? What, what decisions did you make that contribute to the poor situation for your life? Because if you really look at it closely, people that grow up in bad situations, that there are many times that you hear great success, uh, success stories coming from those bad, humble beginnings. We, call, we have a name for it. Rags to riches. There's a whole category of humanity that fits into that. Rags to riches. So to say, well, because of my circumstance, I wasn't able. No, no. Circumstances can be overcome. 1 Samuel 13, let's get verse 9, 8. Let's start at verse 8. It says, and he tarried there seven, I'm sorry, he tarried seven days according to the set time that Samuel had appointed. But Samuel came not to Gilgal, and the people were scattered from him. And Saul said, Bring hither a burnt offering to me, and peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. And it came to pass that as soon as he had made an end of offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came and went out to meet, uh, to meet him, that he might salute him. And Samuel said, What hast thou done? Now here's the accusation. Watch how Saul, in, in so many words, cries, Victim! He said, and Saul said, because I saw that the people were scattered from me and that thou camest not within the days appointed and that the Philistines gathered themselves together at Michmash, therefore said I, the Philistines will come down now upon me to Gilgal and I have not made supplication unto the Lord. I forced myself therefore and offered a burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, thou hast done foolishly for thou hast not kept the commandment of the Lord thy God. What did Saul try to do? Saul, what did you do this for? What hast thou done? It was the people. The people, you know, they didn't support me the way I should have been supported. And by the way, Samuel, you didn't show up exactly when I thought you should. And it was the Philistines. The Philistines were getting... You know the only innocent person in Saul's mind is Saul. 
He's a victim of a horrible society. Saul, listen, you're a part of that society. You have to function in that society, and crying victim is not going to solve the problem. Like I said, it takes away from the real victims. Not to pick on Saul, let's talk about a different man who, I don't know if this was a stronghold, I would think of this more like a tent. But David, he messed up with Bathsheba, had her husband killed, Uriah. Some time goes by, the baby is born, and now the prophet Nathan comes into him, gives him that parable. Hey, this rich guy took this poor guy's lamb and cooked him for his visitors. And David said, oh, that guy should be killed. And, and David's right, according to the law, that is what was supposed to happen. And Nathan said, David, thou art the man. You did this. David was worried about this other victim. He said, David, this is your fault. You brought this on you. All right, so let's talk about another one. Come to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. Now let's talk for a moment about perfectionism. Perfectionism. Now again, this is an exaggeration of a virtue. It's a virtuous thing to try to improve. There's nothing wrong with the desire to get better, to move forward, to make progress. You're going to see it in Philippians 3. We studied it recently on a Thursday night. If you have obtained the precious faith of Jesus Christ, you are supposed to add diligently to your faith. Virtue, knowledge, temperance, patience, etc. So there's nothing wrong with trying to get better, trying to improve. But this can go too far. It becomes a stronghold. So every time you try, every time you... Make, t- take a couple of steps in the right direction, you find absolutely no joy in what you have accomplished because all you're looking at are the steps you haven't taken yet. And, and you're not finding any, here's the biblical word, contentment. To say, hey, I'm still on my journey. I'm not done with the race yet. I'm still running. And I might stumble and fall. That doesn't mean I'm, I'm finished. I can rise up and keep going. I can learn from that mistake. So rather, the perfectionist struggles to find any joy, contentment, or satisfaction in any part of life. Because what he sees, or what she sees, is, well, it could be better. What couldn't be? Until you see Jesus, everything could be better. Just accept the reality of the fact if you live in a fallen, cursed world, there are going to be imperfections in absolutely everything. Life is riddled with it. Accept it. Deal with it. Don't let it become a stronghold that keeps you from moving forward. You're going to begin to discourage yourself and eventually, maybe even quickly, quit. Because you'll start to tell yourself, I'm never going to get it right. No matter what I do, it's never enough. And all of a sudden, you think God cannot be happy with you. Your family, your friends cannot be happy with you. Your church cannot be happy with you. Your job can't be happy. You're just going to be a failure. Why? Because it's not perfect. Whoa, whoa, time out. Who said that you have to 
completely get every part of it exactly where it needs to be in order for you to be acceptable. What does the Bible say about this? Ephesians chapter 1. You are accepted in the Beloved. Does this mean that you are sinless and that's why Jesus accepted you? No, He accepted you not when you were good, not when you were righteous, but God commendeth His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God has made a way for sinful men to walk closely and intimately with Him. And He knows this while knowing your frame that you are but dust. He is very pitiful. He's very merciful. He's very understanding. He's very long-suffering to the guy that will do what he can and say, Lord, I, I know there's room for improvement, but today that's the best I could do. And Lord, maybe today this wasn't the best I could do, but tomorrow I'll try to do better. God can be very patient with that. Let's see it in Philippians 3, beginning at verse 12. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended. Where am I at? I'm, I'm, forgive me. Verse 12, forgive me. Not as though I had already attained. Either were already perfect. Paul said, I do not have it all figured out yet. But I follow after. If that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. I'm going to keep pressing towards this mark so that I can get a hold of the reason Jesus got a hold of me. I want to fulfill the calling. Verse 13, Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Brethren, that is what's expected of you. Not perfection, in the moment but pressing God doesn't expect you to have it all figured out right away he expects you to keep moving towards that now what I know this is going to get a, lit, a little tricky with the wording but you'll see it in the text just now God what do you want me to do today press toward the mark that is as much as I can do today right that's the whole show today. How do I get 100% today? Just press. Just reach. Just follow. Follow after. That's as much as I can do today. Now, does that mean that's as much as I can do in my life? If I just press towards the mark today, only today, have I done everything I'm supposed to do? No, there's tomorrow and I'll need to reach and follow and press tomorrow. So it, it's perfect in the sense of I've done what I can today, but it's not perfect in the sense of the overall big picture. Yes, there's still room to grow. So do you see how you could be perfect in the moment, but not perfect in the bigger picture? So look at verse 15. Let us therefore, as many as be perfect... Now, now wait a minute. He just said that he's not perfect. He just said that he hasn't apprehended. But now he says, perfect. In what way? I'm doing what I can right now. I know there's still room to grow. So he's talking about two different contexts. Verse 15, let us therefore as many as be perfect be thus minded. There we go, back to the battleground. Get this in your head. And if anything be otherwise... 
I'm sorry, if, uh, and if in anything ye be otherwise minded, God shall reveal even this unto you. Nevertheless, whereto we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule, let us mind the same thing. What is that? Today I can be content because I did all I could today. And the fact that there's still things to improve does not mean that God has crossed me off his list. I can still be in fellowship with him. Chapter 4, verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say rejoice. Well, perfectionist struggles to do that. Verse 11. Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. A perfectionist can't do that. He'll never be content because it could always be better. Verse 13. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. That means you can find a way to rejoice even in your imperfect condition. All right, let's get another one. Uh, Turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3, and let's talk for a moment about defensiveness. Defensiveness. I'll have to move a little quickly for the sake of time, but I think these are fairly obvious, so maybe not a lot of explanation is needed. Defensiveness. Again, let's be mindful that defensiveness is an exaggeration of something that is okay. It is okay to defend yourself. Self-defense is a biblical thought. It's not wrong. If you are under attack, you can take measures to protect yourself. That's not wrong. That's not wrong. And depending on the context, of course, what you do to protect yourself might, might change. But defensiveness goes to a different level. Defensiveness is somebody is what you, i got to choose my words carefully, you think they're attacking. They may not be. Maybe they are, maybe they're not, but whatever the case, you feel attacked. You perceive it as an attack. You you think that they're being aggressive. So immediately, you throw up the walls. A defense mechanism. You throw it up and you say, okay, you're not allowed to say anything negative about me. And we begin to defend not the truth of the matter. See, to protect yourself would be to say, let's actually find out if I did what you're accusing me of, let's get to the bottom of it, talk about the truth. Because if I'm wrong, I'm happy to learn from that. I'm happy to apologize and try better and we'll move on. See, that's not defensive. That's, that's humility. But a defensive person is there not to protect the truth of the matter. They are there to protect their pride. The stronghold goes up around their ego. And how dare you think that I have flaws? And who are you to point them out? See, all of a sudden, defensiveness becomes, instead of defensive, it becomes offensive many times. We feel offended, so what do we do? We pick up those fiery darts and throw them right back. (laughs) And we launch into a tirade where we throw every nasty thing we can at the other person and say, but what about you? Don't you have faults? Who are you to judge me? And all of a sudden, you've built a barrier around yourself so that no one can examine or critique or offer an opinion about what you're doing. But that's, that's the consequence of pride in your life. Nobody's able to help you because you won't allow them, even peacefully, 
calmly to say, I'm concerned about you. I think this is hindering your life. Defensiveness kicks in and says, how you couldn't possibly be qualified to tell me about my life. If a person is defensive, it becomes very difficult to be vulnerable. And vulnerability is important to growth. To be vulnerable is to leave a spot open where the enemy or a friend might hit you. Because the Bible does say that a friend sometimes need to, needs to smite you. Right? Don't, don't, don't smite Tony Alton. <laughs> Open rebuke is better than secret love. And faithful are the wounds of a friend. But if you are a defensive person by nature... As soon as anything is said about you that you feel is negative, whoop, you throw up the defense mechanism and you will not allow anyone to say anything that might indicate you've done anything wrong. So friend or foe, nobody can wound you. Do you realize if that's your stronghold, you're going to struggle to get anything out of the Bible? Because I promise you, if you spend real time reading this book... Time and time again, the sword of the Spirit, which is sharper than any two-edged sword, is going to cut hot and deep. And the defense mechanism will whoop, shoot up and say, uh-uh, no, that can't be right. And we shut the book. You hear it in a sermon and, oh, did you hear how he said that? Why does he have to get so loud? Hey, man, is it true or not? Why you got to talk about my volume? <laughs> my volume's not the problem. What about the issue that was raised? That's just a defense mechanism. Genesis chapter 3, you'll see it quickly here. God help me, I need to move. Genesis 3 verse 12. Adam has been confronted by God. Adam, where art thou? I, I hid myself. Who told thee that thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree? Verse 12, and the man said, the woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I did eat. A little bit of a victim mentality there as well, but do you see the defense here? What was the question? Verse 11, hast thou eaten of the tree? Adam, you need to answer the question. God put the sword in. Did you eat? He sticks in it. And Adam's response was, he didn't say, yes, Lord, I ate, the, I ate from the tree. He didn't say that. You know what his response was? Immediately, well, it was the woman. It was the woman. Lord, let's not talk about what I did wrong. It was the woman. And by the way, Lord, you gave me the woman. <laughs> so it's not just her fault. It's your fault. You're conspiring against me. A little bit of victim mentality. But a whole lot of defensiveness. Now, the thing about the Lord is He goes right past that. <laughs> he sees right through that fig leaf you're wearing. All right, let's come to the last one. Get John chapter 20. John chapter 20. And we'll talk just for a moment about doubts. Doubting. Once again, doubts are not a bad thing in and of themselves. There are certain things you should doubt. But exaggerated 
when it goes too far, it can become a stronghold. If a politician makes a promise, the smart thing to do is to doubt it. That's just, that makes sense. That's common sense. That's 6,000 years of human history. You know, the sun comes up and goes down for a while. You begin to learn some things. You begin to expect some things. If a politician's saying it, eh, I don't know how true that is. See, so some, del- some doubts are healthy. If insufficient evidence has been given to support a claim, you are right to doubt that thing. But when it becomes a problem is when sufficient evidence has been given and you still are stuck in the what-if game. Well, okay, yeah, that's pretty convincing, and yeah, I must admit that makes sense, but, but what if it's not right? Okay, what makes you think it's not right? Well, I'm just saying, what if it's not? Okay, but, but what, what about the evidence would lead you to believe that it's not right? Well, I'm just saying, what are you saying? <laughs> well, I'm just saying, you know, what if it's not? Well, you're stuck in an infinite loop, what we call an infinite regress, where you just keep going back and back and back to the same question. You're going to regress into mental oblivion after a while because you're going to start to doubt whether you're actually sitting in the chair right now. What if I'm not really here? What if I'm just dreaming? What if this is the matrix? I'm not unplugged yet. What if? Okay. At a certain point, you're going to have to pinch yourself and go, okay, there's some reality. <laughs> if the pinch isn't enough, we'll go, whack. <laughs> there, does that feel real? <laughs> whack. <laughs> so, so doubt's good for up, up to a, a point. The day of the resurrection, the ladies came and said, Thomas, and to all the apostles, by the way, we have seen the Lord. Thomas actually wasn't there at that point, but the apostles told him later. The ladies came, they said they saw the Lord, Peter saw the Lord. And what did Thomas say? Ah, oh, no, until I put the finger in and touch the point where he was, st- I'm not going to believe it. Okay, Thomas, wait a minute. You have eyewitnesses, reliable eyewitnesses, and Jesus has been saying for over a year that he is going to die, three days later rise again, and you have the scriptures that say it. Thomas, what more evidence would you like? Thomas said, eh, no, no, not me. But what if? What if, it, what if the ladies are lying? What if we don't understand that part of the Bible? What if we didn't understand what Jesus was saying? What if? John 20, verse number 26, And after eight days again his disciples were within, and Thomas with them. Then came Jesus, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, said, Peace be unto you. Then saith he to Thomas, Reach hither thy finger, and behold my hands. Reach hither thy hand, and thrust it into my side. Ouch. And be not faithless, but believing. So here is Jesus helping Thomas to overcome his stronghold. But this is a stronghold. This is not just a tent. This is how Thomas was built. This was just kind of his, his way of living. Everything he looked at, he thought, no, that can't be right. I want more proof. I want more proof. Eventually, you're going to have to say, that is enough proof. God, I believe what you have revealed, and now it's time to act on it. You say, but I want more proof. How much proof did God offer? Because as much, what you want to do is take the proof that he's offered and say, God, if you offered it, that, that, that should be enough. Well, you know, me, uh, for other people, it might be good, but I want more. Okay, so now you get to dictate to God how much proof he has to give you? 
I'm not sure that's a good attitude. You, you see how that becomes a stronghold. And all of a sudden, genuine, legitimate people are telling you things like, hey, I love you. Your spouse one day will say, hey, I love you. And what will be the mindset? Yeah, but what if you don't? Hey, brother, hey, sister, you'd be surprised how many times that gets in the way of a marriage because it's a lack of trust. It's a stronghold. I don't trust anybody. I don't trust anything. Unless I can see it, feel it, taste it, touch it, you better get used to somebody telling you some truth and you accepting it. All the way back to the Garden of Eden. The, the devil comes to Eve. Yea, hath God said? What's he trying to do? Get her to doubt what God had said. God has given us some exceeding great and precious promises. And he's given us good reason to believe them. None of these must we accept by blind faith. We have very strong evidence to believe that these words are not the words of men, but in truth the words of God. But they don't begin to effectually work in you until you believe it. And perhaps you need to pull down that stronghold of doubt. In John 20, we see Thomas's reaction in verse 28. Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God. So, so you see what he did? He pulled down the stronghold. He said, oh, you know what? Shame. I struggled to believe because of the way I usually think. I'm going to pull that down, worship you as my Lord and my God. In verse 29, Jesus says to him, Thomas, because thou hast seen, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. That is, they didn't need this second and third and fourth visitation. These folks that just believed the evidence that we provided originally, they're going to be much happier. And so will you if you start pulling down strongholds. All right, let's all stand if you would, please. Father, thank you this morning for exposing some of the tents, some of the strongholds that get wrapped around our hearts and minds. Lord, help us today by the Word of God and by your grace to pull those things down and to begin to think and feel the way you designed us to do that. Father, bless the service to come and our fellowship now to follow. In Jesus' name, amen.